0: the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. As was mentioned before, we're going to be reading Psalm 101. This is a prayer for help to walk a blameless path and to live with integrity within our efforts and God's help are necessary. I will sing of your love and justice. I will praise you, Lord, with song. I will be careful to live a blameless life. When will you come to my aid? I will lead a life of integrity in my own home. I will refuse to look at anything vile and vulgar. I hate all crooked dealings. I will have nothing to do with them. I will reject perverse ideas and stay away from every evil. I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbours. I will not endure conceit and pride. I will keep a protective eye on the godly, so they may dwell with me in safety. Only those who are above reproach will be allowed to serve me. I will not allow deceivers to serve me, and um, liars will not be allowed to enter my presence. My daily task will be to ferret out criminals, out criminals, and free the city of the Lord, the city of the Lord, from their grip. Amen. Strong words, aren't they?
1: When we speak like I do and this is really probably the, more the first time in my life it's happened we're given topics, and sometimes the topics are easy, and sometimes they're quite hard. And uh, today's topic, I think, is a bit hard. It might be, well, it will be challenging, probably, and it might be controversial. As I often put up there, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. That's from 1 Corinthians 14. And so listen carefully, have a think, and see if there's a message in here for you. If you, and I'm going to ask that you hear me out, don't stop listening. I often be in, I'm often got in trouble for the things I've said up the front here, but it's almost always, or maybe totally always, because people are either only half listened, or because they listened well, but only to half of what I said. So if I say something and think, hey, that's not right, keep listening. Keep listening to the end, and then you can come and shoot me. All right, last week. (laughs) Well, rather than shoot me, come and tell me please right we had trouble some years ago where people would always moan to other people to Brian Havel actually Brian they'd tell Brian Jeremy said this that and the other and Brian would say no he didn't and he'd tell him what I actually said that's why Brian started taking sermon notes true story now last week Mark told us a story which was really quite sad wasn't it it was quite horrifying he read to us from Psalm 51 do you remember that And Psalm 51 was a plea for forgiveness and an acknowledgement of guilt from a middle-aged King David. Mark told us the story of David and Bathsheba, how David, when he should have been off fighting a battle, but he left it to Joab to manage that, he lay around in the palace sleeping till afternoon, and then in the afternoon he got up out of bed, went for a walk on the roof, looked out to see what he could see, and he saw a woman there he fancied, and he asked who she was. Now, he shouldn't have even been there, should he? But he asked who she was. Turns out that she's Bathsheba, who she's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, who's one of his top men, a very loyal general and a personal friend of his. Right, he says, go and get the woman and bring her to me. Naughty David. So the, the woman comes to him. They spend some time together. And then she goes back home and sends word, I'm pregnant. Now, David takes some steps to try and cover it up, but when that doesn't succeed, he gives instructions that on the battlefield, they're to arrange the death of Uriah, this wonderful general, which they do. Uriah's killed, and some innocent men as well. Well, he was innocent, and when David hears about all these people being killed, he goes, oh, well, that's the way it goes. David was a very evil man, and it it wasn't until after a very, very brave person came to confront the king, which could be dangerous in those days, and actually... Laid, laid it down to David that David said, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I admit it. And then he wrote this amazing Psalm 51 that says, I'm so dirty, I'm so filthy. God, can you forgive me? Can you make me clean again? Renew uh, what well, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within, in me. That was last week. And then today, we read this Psalm 101. I won't have anything to do with bad people. There'll be nothing bad in my house. I'm going to look out. I'm going to get all the wrongdoers. And you go... Hang on, David, what? Hello, is this the same David? That's why I called my sermon, Is This Really You, David? So how can this be? Is this the same David who did all that awful stuff? And then he says, I won't even have to do with anybody who's nasty and bad. I'm going to have a totally clean life. Is it the same David? Is it? In a sense, no. And I'm going to explain why. Do you know who wrote the Psalms? Lots of people wrote the Psalms. Do you know how long it took to write the book of Psalms? Over a 1,000 years, that's right. Now the oldest psalm is Psalm 90, and that was written by Moses over a 1,000 years before David. So here's the big surprise. You'd think Moses' psalm would be Psalm 1, but it isn't. So the psalms are in order which often appears random. They're not in time order. Psalm 51, the one that Mark... Opened up to us last week with David and Bathsheba was written when David was a middle aged king, happy, secure, rich, powerful, and naughty. But the one that Iris read to us today, Psalm 101, was written earlier when he was a young king. Now, just out of interest, I said Psalm 51 was written when he was a middle-aged king. Psalm 52 and 53, which follow, were written when he was a very young man running away from King Saul. So you can see that the order of the Psalms is not in order that things happen. Now, back to Psalm 101. So we've got David has just come to the throne, a bit like King Charles, but much, much younger. And so this Psalm 101 is a bit like David saying, I'm going to be a mighty king, so enemies beware. Okay, except that David changes the words and he says, I'm going to be a righteous king, so naughty people beware. Watch out, naughty people, because I'm going to be the goodest king whoever. He's not bragging about his might like the Lion King did. He's bragging about his righteousness. And Young people are often idealistic, aren't they? People used to say to me, oh, Jeremy, you're so idealistic, and I would reply, as a young man, I'd say, well, good, I'm pleased, because a lot of the old people I know have lost their ideals so much that I want to go into adulthood with enough ideals to last me through, so that's what I did. With the result that at 68, I'm still fairly idealistic. Now, let's have a bit of a look at this psalm. It says, um, I will ponder the way that is blameless, when will you come to me? So it's almost as if David says, look, this is what I'm going to do, this, 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 and this. And if I do all these things, then God will come to me. Walk in my house with integrity of heart. Integrity means that you're the same wherever you are. See, Russell, he's in church, he's in the golf club, he's the same person. That's integrity. Nick comes to church, and then he works in the prison, and Luana does the same, and they're the same person. Their job is different, but you don't say, oh, there's one side to you when you're there and one side when you're here. I was a school teacher and boy, did I get a bit of a, the first time one of my ex-students walked into a Bible study because I thought, if I'm not the same person in the Bible study as I was when I was teaching school, I'm busted. But I got away with it and it's happened many times since. So that's integrity. Are you the same wherever you are? I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. No trashy magazines, no porn, no, no stupid TV shows. See, David's setting high standards, isn't he? I shall know nothing of evil. I hate the work of everyone who falls away. See, he's, boy, he's, whoever slanders his neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Well, goodness, slandering your neighbor in secret. Hey, did you hear about what, did you hear about what Elliot's been up to this week? You know, this sort of stuff goes on, doesn't it? But, but David's going to wipe it out. He's going to stop it all over his whole kingdom. So nobody will be able to say, did you hear about what Teresa did? Ah, king will get you. I mean, this is a big claim, isn't it? no only people who walk in integrity shall serve me well that's good no one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house which is kind of a dag isn't it when david himself ended up being such a very very deceitful man and presumably still lived in his own house one who tells lies no one who stands tells lies shall stand in my presence except me except me and then the 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 last one for me is the kicker every morning i will remove all the wicked of the land That I may cut off every evildoer from the city of God. So when you get up in the morning, I don't know what you do, but when David got up in the morning, he says, Right, who are we going to wipe out today? Have you found any evildoers? We'll get them. That's his task. That's harsh, isn't it? That is harsh. I want you to have a look at another story which reminds me very much of the two Davids. Do you remember this story? It's called The Pharisee and the Tax Collector. It's in Luke 18, and it says this. To some who trusted in their own righteousness and viewed others with contempt, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, swindlers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Does that remind you of young David or old David? Young David, doesn't it? I am the good king. See? And then, but the tax collector stood at a distance, unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven. Instead, he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but one who humbles himself will be exalted. There's a well-established image of Christians being judgmental. You shouldn't be doing that. It's her own fault. If she didn't do that, then boop, boop. Uh, Are you aware of the image? People think Christians are judgmental. I went around to see a young mother a couple of weeks ago with a Christmas box, gave her the Christmas box, and we're just having a little talk. Her kids were all there, and halfway through the conversation, out of the blue, she said, Don't judge me. Please don't judge me. I was quite taken aback I said well I never have I'm not going to start now but what had happened is I'd called in on her when she just had a bit too much to drink I mean she wasn't bashing the kids up or anything but she was a bit under the weather we brought a a neighbor of ours who was a prostitute to this church right here she gave her heart to the Lord but she said I like this church they don't judge me and we also brought a young gay guy along and he he gave his heart to the Lord within two days of coming to this church but what he said to me years later, he said, he wrote to me and said, When I went and mixed with the Baptist Church, they knew I was gay and I expected they would judge me, but they didn't. We loved him. And within a day, actually, one and a half days, his heart had softened, and he said to me, I've decided I'm gonna stop being gay, I'm gonna be a Christian. Powerful stuff. And yet when you flick on the TV, and especially in America, you can see marches in the streets, people bombing abortion clinics, and, you know, trying, let's have righteousness, enough is enough. People, Christians out there, trying to set a standard. I'm not saying that's totally wrong. Uh, Some people think that Christians are the moral police of society, and some people think that Christians think they're the moral police of society, but they shouldn't be. I remember years ago in the Philippines, there was a big march you know, for righteousness because they wanted to stop prostitution in Manila. There was a lot of prostitution. So the march for righteousness, stop all the prostitution, and the police listened, and the police shut down a lot of the, the prostitution that was going on on the streets. Then there was another march. And this march had big signs, that was the prostitutes marching, saying, all right, Mr. Policeman, you feed our children. Ooh. See, there are reasons people do things. And that's why people go over to places like where Sarah goes, and they say, all right, we do need to start by finding another way for you to feed your children, don't we? And Christians set up businesses. You see, that's not judgmental. That's empowering. That's loving. I had a friend called Nancy Ahu. Do you remember her? And she said to me one day, looking for trouble is like picking your nose. Now, I never asked her to explain it, but I think she meant you'll always find something and it won't be very nice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> As a young man I made a life changing promise to myself I decided I won't take offence at someone where offence is not intended I was working with people in South Auckland who were you know, a bit rough in their language and approach to things And I decided I will not take offence unless offence is intended And that is something that's changed my life And I th- just imagine for a minute, just imagine if everybody here had decided that at the same age if everyone in our church had decided that. Just imagine if Prince Harry had decided that as a young man. I won't take offence where it's not intended. And now it's fashionable to be, to be offended about everything, isn't it? Uh, Luca Geisman said to me, who's that guy? Uh, Billy, T. <laughs> Billy T. James. Th- Luca Geisman said to me, I watch Billy T. James. I can't believe the stuff you were allowed to laugh about in the old days. <laughs> Which is true. Which is true. See, now we're too scared to have fun, to have a laugh, because somebody might be offended. You know, somebody said, I wonder what Harry and Megan's baby will look like. Racism, racism, and he writes a book about how the palace is racist. Well, oh, when I when Janet and I got we we went to my mum, Mum, we're gonna get married. Oh, she says, I wonder what my grandchildren will look like. But now that's racist. Why is it racist? Because Megan is a woman of colour, that's why. A woman of colour? Gosh. We used to talk about colored people, but that was a racist, so we had to stop. Now we have to call people of color. The rules change all the time, don't they? Not inside. not inside, no. They change all the time. Now we've got the, uh, this thing here. Do you know what that is? Moth. What kind of moth? You don't know. It's what we've always called the gypsy moth, but we're not allowed to call it that anymore. Because to call that the gypsy moth is disrespectful to the Romani people. We now have to call it the sponge moth. There you go. And the, the Asian paper wa- I mean the Asian paper wasp was called that because it's a paper wasp that comes from Asia but now we're not allowed to call it that because that might offend Asian people. What's next? English muffins? French fries? African elephant? The white butterfly? <laughs> what what are some of the things we can't do because we're always afraid of offending? But what I'm saying is let's not us be part of the offenderity. Hmm? Okay. That's right. Now, I'm not Jane Ply, I'm not saying that we should be insensitive, but, but what I'm saying is, let's not be part of the offender, Archie. All right? Let's remember what Nancy said. Don't go looking for trouble. You know, ooh, the white butterfly. What is is that going to offend white people? Oh, it's just a white butterfly, for goodness' sake. You know, is there a place for Christians to set a standard? Yes, there is. Listen to this. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 writes, Expel the immoral brother. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I was not including the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a verbal abuser, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business of mine is it to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Yes, there's a place for Christians to set a standard, isn't there? So we don't judge outsiders. Our discipline is within the church. It's inside the church, and it's related to immorality within the church. We can make rules about what happens here. It's our church. Not whether a Christian should go dancing, or have a beer, or be a vegetarian, or send their kids to school, or drive a petrol car, or say gypsy moth. I think these are personal choices and not moral issues. But some people would disagree but each of us has a zone of authority. I taught in a classroom close to here where I had some very tough boys. They were, most of them were young criminals and they, were, they called me into the school to try and deal with these difficult people. So I had a tough boys class called Ho, And one of the things about them was the way they talked. That There was lots and lots of rude words, right? Their language was just, it took a long time to say anything. Because, because you had to put all swear words in the sentence. So I put, a, I put up a sign on the wall, and it said this. Oops, it said this. This was the rule of the classroom. Kauai, fakamana. And What that means is don't put people down, don't belittle them, build them up. That's what that means. And if ever I saw one of those boys putting someone else down, I said, whoa. I always corrected the boys quietly, On privately, hey, come here, I need to tell you something, because that protected the boy's mana. But as I did that, never addressing what you might call the bad language, I was interested in something. The bad language just fell away. The the naughty words stopped coming, because as people began to build each other up instead of put each other down, it just happened. Did I have the right to do that? I was very strict. I had the right to do that because it was my class, in fact, my responsibility before God. If you have a shop, you could write, no abuse of staff will be tolerated. If you have a van, you could, you could say, no smoking in my van, no fighting, feet on the floor, not the dashboard. It's my van. If you borrow it, please tell them that. Or if you have a taxi, I've heard of Christian parents who say, yes, I know you smoke weed, but you're not going to smoke weed in my house. I know you sleep with your girlfriend, but not in this house. This is our house, and you have a zone of authority. And at that point, I think that you can set standards. You know, there is a place to set standards. Paul quoted this, and uh, we were having a talk many years ago, and we said, what are the things that young people need to do to stay strong in their Christian faith? And somebody said, read the Bible. Is that good? Yep. Pray every day. Is that good? Go to church, have fellowship. Yeah. And Deborah Rogers popped in and she said, the most important thing is have good friends. Because if your teenagers have good friends who want the best for them, they will go to church. They will pray every day. They will read the Bible. It's that peer pressure or that peer group, isn't it, that makes such a difference. And, you know, for young people or young Christians, especially if they've come from a difficult background, Psalm 101 about, you know, what what you look at and who you hang with is very, very good advice. But now let's look at the other side. Let's look at the older David and the tax collector. They still hated sin, didn't they? But it was different. How was it different? Because the tax collector hated hated sin in himself. And David, older David, hated the sin in himself. David actually wrote this in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, test me. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, by Psalm 51 I don't think David could have ever written Psalm 101 again. And I suggest that after that, after he fell, David's dealing with sinners would be quite different. What if David found out that his friend was having an affair? Young David would say, get him out of my kingdom. This man must be destroyed. But old David would take him aside and say, my friend, I know what you're going through and I know what you're doing, and I did it myself. Can I give you some good advice? Because, you see, David understands He's had an affair, and it was a disaster. But David doesn't come from a place of arrogance. You shouldn't be doing that. He comes from a place of compassion. That is a really bad idea, and I know if anyone does. In Galatians chapter 6, it says this. Brothers, if someone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. It could have been me. Now I see people doing things, which I've never done, but I go, could have been me. I could have done that. I could have stolen a car. I felt like it once. I could have been driven by this, this, these sorts of desires to do these sorts of things. It could have been me. And so I come alongside people instead of sitting judgment on them. Have you ever heard, we should hate the sin but love the sinner? I think that's very hard to do. I think it comes across as harsh it can come across as harsh we hate homosexuality of course we love you it comes across as harsh or can do what did Jesus do well this woman was found in the actual act of adultery she was sentenced to death and Jesus saved her life there was a great big drama around it you'd remember the confrontation In the end, he says, do they condemn you? No, none of them condemn me. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, he says. What? Didn't Jesus thunder on about her terrible sin? No. This was a horrendous crime with a death penalty, but Jesus just said, you're forgiven. Don't do it again. Because Jesus was so busy caring for people that he didn't often confront sin." He worked with hotheads and prostitutes, fraudsters and thieves, but he hardly ever personally talked to them about sin. With Zacchaeus, he didn't say anything about sin. He brought transformation just by visiting his house for lunch. Jesus is our example, not David. David was changeable, Jesus wasn't. There was one sin that made Jesus very angry. Do you know what it was? Listen to this from Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? He never talked to prostitutes and tax collectors like that, did he? What was the sin that made Jesus so angry? Do you know? It was religious people who thought they were better than everyone else. That's who it was. Sometimes Christians, are accused of that. But we're no better than anyone else. We're no better than anyone else, are we? We're just forgiven, that's all. Remember, that was the sin that Jesus hated the most. I knew a man called Mal Maloney, and he said, um, he said, don't put me on a pedestal. He was a very popular church pastor. Don't put me on a pedestal, because God will have to knock me off. So how would God knock you off your pedestal? I knew a Christian leader well. He was, a very, uh, he was an evangelist. He related well to people, and he was very popular. And he used to stand up and thunder against sin, especially adultery adultery, it's not a love affair, it's adultery. And when he fell off his pedestal, and when he left his family for another woman, there were shockwaves right through the society that he was from. Now, I knew a man who knew him well, and this, this, I said this man was an evangelist, and this man had come to tell me sorry the the evangelist used to tell me about how he's working with this man who i'll call fred it's not his real name i'm working with fred and i think he's starting to soften his heart to the lord and he's really his heart's being touched but when i went to see fred after that this mr evangelist fell off his perch fred just said to me how have the mighty fallen that was all he ever said all he ever said about it now fred and i get on well but it's very awkward for me to talk to him about things of god if you you know if you've had an, an experience if you've you had experience of a sin or if you've had an experience at all you have a compassion and an understanding of the situation you know if you've struggled with addiction you understand what it's like don't you if you've been in prison you know what it's like if you've had cancer you know what it's like if you've lost a child you know what it's like people seek out others who know what it feels like I like to put people in touch. Is it hard to be a gang chick? Yes, it is hard. So if I'm dealing with a woman who's struggling with this life of a gang chick, I would like her to talk to a woman who used to be a gang chick. Because you see, we have an understanding. If you've been one, you understand. And if I call you in, which I've done, say, will you come with me and see this person? And that might be my way of saying I think your life experience would gel with theirs. I think this could be useful. Now I'm going to tell you about God, asking God for a miracle. Listen to this and see what you think. I asked God for the compassion without the experience. You see, I deal with people who I have not had their experience. I don't really know what it's like to be so addicted to a substance that you can't live without it. And you find yourself against your own will, spending all your money on drugs so you can't feed your family. That's never happened to me. To be honest, I've never, ever had to choose between buying food and paying the power bill. Never. So how can I have compassion? I don't want the experience, to be honest. So what I do, I ask God for a miracle. God, can I have the compassion without the experience? Can I be like Jesus? He never sinned. But he was so patient with poor, sinful people. Can God work a wonder in our life by his Holy Spirit that we can somehow build the bridge, bridge the gap as we talk about, with people who aren't like us? I've never had a cheating partner. I've never had no food for my children. You see, I could be judgmental, but as I pray, God begins to change me. I remember going to a a tangi way out the back of Waingaro there, and there was a boy, a teenage boy in a coffin. So many teenagers we bury, do not we? And this teenage boy was there, and I was sitting by the coffin weeping for sorrow for this boy, and at the same time thinking about myself. Why do I feel like this? this? I don't even know this boy. I don't know him. I've just come to support, you know. And yet my heart's breaking for this teenage boy and his family and i realized god was doing something to answer my prayer he's making me feel although i could never fully feel what would it be to lose a son to see your kid in the box i want to have the compassion like jesus without one of my kids dying how could somebody take drugs and not even care if they live or die Well, many years ago, I was prescribed some drugs, medical drugs, that had a bad effect on me. And I actually lay on the floor at my house for three days. For three days, I didn't drink anything, I didn't eat anything, and I didn't pee. Now, when Nurse Anna heard about that, she said something is very wrong. And she got all militant and arranged for me to go to hospital, which might have saved my life. But while I was lying there, I thought, I don't even care if I live or die. I used to think, how could people not care if they live or die? But that was me. I was there. In case you're curious, I lived. I'm still here. But that was like, in a way, although it was an un- unpleasant experience, but it was like God opening a little window into an experience which I'd never had. You see? Are you willing to do that? As I change, and as we change, we can start to bridge the gap. Christians haven't always been good at that. Jesus was. And if I pray like that now. Would you join me? Are you up for it? I'm going to pray right now. You join in if you can make, I'll pray right now. And if you want to make this prayer yours, please do. And I've also, and after that, I'm going to tell you a little quick story. So here we go. God, I have prayed that somehow I can have the compassion of Jesus, being able to reach out and relate to people whose experience is really quite different to mine. And if your spirit would do that with us as a church and with us as individuals, we'll find that bridging the gap starts to work. We can reach out to people who perhaps we just couldn't relate to before, but now we can. What would it be like? So God, I pray that corporately as a body and individually to everyone of goodwill who's asking for it, that you'd help us to just have eyes to see what it's like to be someone else on the other side of the tracks, another background for each other within the church that we can be kind and compassionate and for people outside the church we'll never come across as judgmental but rather like Jesus as compassionate we ask in Jesus name amen I said I'd tell you a story at the end and here it is you know this one I was talking to a, a woman called Sam who was a work colleague And she she was quite a driven sort of a woman. I said to her, Sam, can I tell you something? I said, when I was a young man, I had very high standards. And when I was in my 20s, I learned to apply grace to the people that I worked with. That was during the time when I decided not to take offence where it wasn't intended. When I was in my 30s, I learned to apply that same grace to my own family. And when I was in my 40s, I learned to apply the same grace to myself. And Sam said to me, I wish you'd told me that 20 years ago. You see, sometimes we need to show grace to ourselves, And some of the harshness, perhaps, that Christians come out with, come across with, maybe it's because we're being very harsh on ourselves. Perhaps we practice harshness like that. I don't know about you, but I think I would have rather met David, although I would have been terribly upset about his awful sin. I think I would have rather met David as an older man, as, rather than a young one. I would have rather met Psalm 51 Daniel or David than Psalm 101 David. Well, there we are. I've said two sides of something today. At the beginning, I said that the prophet's job is to stand up and speak the best he can. and Your job is to weigh what was said and think about it for yourself. I challenge you to do that. Thanks for hearing me out. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast.
0: We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.